0: Children, uh, kindergarten and younger, can we dismiss it this time to go to Sprouts? Uh, First grade and older, we have handouts for you. And uh, if Kenny, if you could come on up, if you have a first grader or older, and if you would like a kid's handout, Kenny will hand that to you right now. And uh, just slip up your hand. (laughs) Thank you for giving one to King. (laughs) That's good to have, King. King, if you open it up, there's a little place you can draw um, the, the, the point of the sermon. All right. So let's turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Oh, Kenny, over here. 1 Corinthians chapter 14. These are, uh, uh, it's a passage with about 40 verses. I'm going to read all, actually, uh, yeah, 40 verses. I'm going to read all 40 verses. And uh, so it's going to be a good bit of reading. Here's what I ask. As I read, follow along in your Bible. If you have one, if you don't have a Bible, uh, you you can just slip up your hand and you'll be handed one. Follow along, or just listen, however you can best sort of uh, take in the Word of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting with verse 1. Pursue love, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you might prophesy, The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless somebody interprets so that the church might be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even a lifeless instrument, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anybody know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, how will anybody get ready for battle? So, with yourselves... If if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anybody know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none of them are without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for the manifestation of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he might interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? I pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing with praise uh, with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how will anyone in the position of an outsider say, Amen? Amen to your thanksgiving, when he does not know what you are saying. For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other, the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, Be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues, and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together, and everybody speaks in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there only be two or three at the most, and each in turn And let somebody interpret. But if there is nobody to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and be encouraged and the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or or, or was it said from, from you that the word of God came? Or are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge these, that, these, that, that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but all things should be done decently and in order." Let's pray and ask God to help us with this passage. Father, we do ask that your Spirit uh, be among us, that we experience Jesus this morning, that we might be able to say, God is with us. Father, we uh, are certainly entering into a chapter that is difficult and debated, confusing, but we believe that this is your Word, and we receive it as your Word, So we ask that you speak powerfully and mightily into our lives and into our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. If you're not a Christian, imagine you visited a church, and when you arrived, the worship began, and everyone began to speak in languages that you had never heard. Not one at a time, but multiple at the same time. Language over here, language over there. No interpretation. You don't know what's going on. You're confused, right? And then some get up and they begin to prophesy. And everything is accepted uncritically. One prophesies about something that is going to happen, and you really wonder whether or not that's actually going to happen. Someone else prophesies something, and you're thinking to yourself, you know, Logically, that contradicts with uh, what the other guy just said. Yet everything is uncritically accepted in the church as from God. It's clear that some in the church, particularly the women, do not trust the leadership of the church and are speaking out against decisions that are made. If you were not a Christian and you visited that church... Uh, you might have an experience as to what the church in Corinth was like. If you're not a Christian, God wants you to be able to walk into a church and clearly hear the good news of Jesus. I wonder if that church that you, in your mind, just walked into, I wonder, as you walked out, if you would be able to to, to articulate what the good news of Jesus actually is. If you are a Christian, when you attend your church gatherings, God wants you to be built up and encouraged and strengthened. That is why this chapter was written. Now, Chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians clearly has some incredibly difficult themes. We see right there in verse 4. It says the one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself. The one who prophesies builds up the church. Or verse 22. Thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers while prophecy is a sign for believers not unbelievers. Like, what is he talking about here? Tongues. Prophecy. And it gets even harder. Verses 34 and 35, silence the women. And I do not permit women to speak in churches, as in all the churches. Because the law says so. Um, and if you have any questions, women, ask your husbands when you get home. If you're single, sorry. Yeah. That's the chapter we're in today. I think we need to do our quiz, which we've done before true or false? Is all of the scripture God's word, God's truth? True or false? True. 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 Amen. Is all of God's truth good for all of his people? True or false? All right. Foundation. Here's where we're going today. Imagine we have a map. You put it on your GPS. Paul has a destination in mind. He wants us to get somewhere with this passage. And I'm going to give you the destination right now. He wants the church's worship to be clear. He wants the church's worship to be corporate, united. And he wants the church's worship to be attractive to unbelievers. That's the destination. However, on his way to the destination, he goes through these two Massive detours. Towns, if you would. And these towns are so confusing and the roads are so complex that it is easy for us in the 21st century to get lost in the towns and never actually arrive at the destination. So what we're going to do is we're splitting this sermon into two parts. Part A is dealing with these two detours. The detour of tongues and the detour of prophecy walking through those streets, examining this town so that we can move on. Examining, walking through so that we can now arrive at the destination for, where, uh, for, for which this chapter was written. So part two will be the destination. So let's begin part one, the two detours. We'll start here with tongues, the gift of tongues. Now if you're new, spiritual gifts are a certain specific God-given ability that you weren't naturally born with, that you have been given, uh, so that the church might be built up and encouraged. So for instance, some spiritual gifts might be the gift of wisdom. Or maybe the gift of encouragement. Or the gift of generosity. Or maybe some have the gift of teaching. Those are very spiritual gifts. Unique abilities given to you by God. The gift in question here is the spiritual gift of Languages, or the spiritual gift of tongues, something given to the church for the edification, for the building up of the church. And then also, of course, the gift of prophecy, which we'll talk about next. Now, one clear use of the gift of languages is, as we see in Acts, the ability to speak a language, a human language that you don't know how to speak. So that you might communicate the gospel to somebody that speaks that language. All right, that's one clear manifestation of the gift of tongues in the passages of uh, Scripture. However, what we see throughout Acts, uh, some unique occurrences of people speaking in gifts, often shortly after, or speaking in tongues, often shortly after conversion. Um, not necessarily to communicate the gospel to somebody in a different language. Also, what we see here in 1 Corinthians, it's in their worship, and it seems that the Corinthian church is coming together, and and as part of their worship, they are speaking in various languages. So it seems that there is another manifestation or expression of the gift of tongues here that's being dealt with in 1 Corinthians. So for example, if you look at verses 18 and 19, you see there, um, let me find it in my Bible. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, I would speak five words with my mind, then 10,000 words in a tongue. If you skip to ver- verse 28, he says there in verse 28, let two or three prophets speak. Let the others weigh what is said. Let's actually skip, skip back uh, to verse 27. Uh, if there isn't, or, no, verse 28, is that right? Yes, verse 28. I read verse 29. If there is nobody to interpret, let the, uh, let, let the tongue speaker keep silent in the church. My point is this, and I just want to pull out a few passages here to show that there was some kind of manifestation of languages in the church in Corinth in, in, in which Paul said, look, if, if there's nobody interpreting, just kind of keep it to yourself, keep it silent. So what's going on? What, what is it? Well, it's not entirely clear from this passage alone what the gift of tongues actually is. Um, but we, we can start talking about what the point of the gift of tongues might be, and that might help us to get around the corner. So what is then the point of speaking in tongues? Well, there's some possibilities that are suggested by various people. One would be that there are secret, hidden mysteries of God that are revealed in a secret language, maybe an angelic language to people, so that we might know some secrets that are in heaven. Um, the the problem with that view is that, first, that is more akin with the gift of prophecy than of tongues in the Scripture, and secondly, God is perfectly fine with speaking the hidden mysteries of heaven in Greek or in the language that they spoke that day, meaning God doesn't need some kind of specific, weird sort of language through which he might communicate some secrets, and then if we can kind of figure it out, etc., Others uh, might suggest that the, that the the reason is, or or um, uh, yeah, the reason is a, is a prayer language and uh, a, a language that you might use privately in prayer just for yourself. It's just a personal thing with me and God, and it helps me to feel better or maybe pray things that I don't re- really realize that I'm praying. Um, we might appeal to verses eighteen and nineteen here, or verse twenty-eight, where Paul says, "If nobody's." to, to, to uh, interpret then just kind of keep it to yourself. It's hard to know, though, whether or not Paul is uh, saying that we ought to do this, we ought to speak to ourselves, or whether he's being sarcastic, saying, hey, if, if nobody's interpreting, just keep it to yourself. Just keep it between you and God. It's really just hard to say. Uh, uh, regardless, what we know from chapter 12 is this. The spiritual gifts are always given to build up the church. So never once do we see a spiritual gift given to build me up. God doesn't give me a gift just for my own personal edification, but it's always for the building up of someone else. So we have to just sort of establish and agree that whatever the gift of tongues is, that it is to build up others, your brothers and sisters in the church. And so whatever Paul was doing and whatever was happening in Corinth must be in line with what we know of for spiritual gifts. Now, there are plenty of abuses with the gift of tongues. One abuse would be that some, uh, some, some might tell you that you must speak in tongues to prove that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And so then there's strange things that happen. Alright? Somebody gets saved. They're converted. And now they must speak in tongues. And so everybody's... Around them. Say something. Like speak in tongues. Try to, try to work it up. Try to do something so that we might know that you are filled with the Holy Spirit and say Jesus over and over and over. Jesus, 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 Jesus. And, and see if you can somehow start speaking in tongues to prove that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. And then some of my friends, some of you in this church have said, and so I did. I started saying stuff that made no sense so that I could get these folks off my back and they would think I'm filled with the holy spirit and then I walked away questioning whether or not I was filled with the holy spirit you see how this is destructive now let me tell you why that is that is heresy it is wrong and we must reject it acts i'm just going to give you you can write these down acts chapter 4 verse 8 acts chapter 4 verse 31 acts chapter 6 verse 3 and 5 Acts chapter 7, verse 55. Acts chapter 9, verse 17. Acts chapter 11, verse 24. Acts chapter 13, verse 9 and 52. All are instances in which someone is filled with the Holy Spirit and they do not automatically speak in tongues. So that is destructive. Secondly, some abuses might be the ecstatic expression of saying absolutely nothing saying absolutely nothing. Verses 14 and 15, look at these verses with me. Paul says, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful, what am I to do? So Paul's not saying that we ought to then not pray with our mind. He's saying, if this is the case, and I'm just saying stuff as static expressions that mean absolutely nothing, then what am I supposed to do? And then he answers himself. He says, I will then pray with my spirit but I will also pray with my mind. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. So whatever the gift of tongues is, then friends, it is not a mindless activity. One friend of mine said, often if you were to ask folks to pray without speaking in tongues, they wouldn't be able to say anything. We we pray not just a static prayer expressions that mean absolutely nothing, but we pray, he says, with our mind. And so whatever it is, then he says, must be interpreted. It only makes sense for the edification of the body if it's interpreted, he says. And friends, it must be an accurate interpretation as well. For example, there was a, uh, a tape. Do you guys remember tapes? They were these little boxes that you could stick in and push play. There was a tape of a a number of folks speaking in uh, modern day uh, expression of tongues. And then they had a number of people who who had the gift of interpretation, listen to the tongues, and interpret what was being said. Each interpreter gave a different interpretation. We must have an accurate interpretation. The Spirit must speak the same interpretation to all. Now some defenders and advocates say, well, the Spirit gives a different interpretation to different interpreters. And using our minds, we might say that sounds preposterous. (laughs) An interpretation of a language is an interpretation. A wrong interpretation is a wrong interpretation. So, all that to say, then there must be an interpretation. So, what is the gift of tongues? Again, it's not entirely clear in this chapter. But one thing we can be certain is this. It's a God-given ability that one does not naturally have to speak in real languages, possibly human languages, and the Corinthians were using it. It was happening in the Corinthian church. Now, the focus here of the apostle writing to the church is not to say that this must happen in your worship, but rather he's putting boundaries around how it happens in the Corinthian worship. The key is interpretation. If there's a tongue, there must be an accurate and reliable interpretation. Look at verse 5. He says, I want you to speak in tongues, even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless somebody interprets. So there must be an interpreter. Verse 7, he has this analogy of an instrument. He says, "If imagine a harp. And imagine all the strings of the harp, or maybe in our context a guitar. All the strings of the guitar are played at the same time. It would mean nothing. It would be chaos. And so he says that the, the, the notes must be distinct. We must be able to hear the melody and the tune in order for, in order for it to make sense. And then he connects that in verses 23 through 26 by saying that there must then be an interpreter so that, so that the body might be edified. And then in verse 27, look at verse 27 with me. If any speak in a tongue, let there be two or three at most, and each in turn, and then let somebody interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in the church and speak to himself or to God. So the key here is when it comes to this gift of tongues being used in the public worship of the church, there must be an accurate and reliable interpreter. Now, one question that we can ask, and it's a good question, is this. Why is it that we in our church, and in many churches, and I would almost say in almost all churches, don't see this gift in this way? Do you see what I'm saying? Why is it that we're not experiencing various languages and then maybe a a few accurate, reliable interpretations? First, it's possible that this gift of tongues in the worship of the church, it was happening with individuals, but in the worship of the church it's possible That this was only happening in the Corinthian church. The only reason I say that is because this is the only epistle which addresses the gift of tongues in worship. This is the only chapter. It's possible that it was actually fairly unique to the Corinthian church in the New Testament, and the church in Ephesus and so on may not have been experiencing it, at least in in the same way. regardless look at verses 21 and 22 we see something in these verses that is absolutely striking and telling he says this in the law that means the old testament for us in the law it is written by strange or by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners i will speak to this people and even then they will not listen to me says the lord thus tongues he says are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers while prophecy is not a For unbelievers, but for believers. What's he saying? Turn back to Isaiah chapter 28. This is where he pulls this quote. Isaiah chapter 28 is a chapter about judgment of God coming through Assyria on Ephraim and Jerusalem for their unbelief. And in verse 11 and 12, he says this prophecy. He says, "...for by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is the rest." Give rest to the weary, and this is repose. Yet they would not hear. So Isaiah, to a wayward people, to a people of unbelief, as Assyria is rolling in as the judgment arm of God, he's saying that there is a greater fulfillment of this kind of judgment coming. And the sign of that greater fulfillment of judgment will be a people who speak in strange tongues in different languages, And it will be a sign, he says, for those who would not hear. So going back now to 1 Corinthians chapter 14, what we are seeing here is somewhat of a fulfillment of that prophecy from Isaiah. Throughout the book of Acts, as the gospel has now burst forth, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, ascended to the right hand of the Father seated at the right hand of the Father, as King and as Lord, and now as every individual is being converted, the Spirit coming with power, there is this sense in which throughout Acts we are seeing amazing stuff happen, a lot of stuff happen, people risen from the dead, uh, uh, a number of instances where people speak in a various language throughout Acts, so that the gospel might be confirmed to an unbelieving people. So that as, as the message of Jesus, this, the beginning of this, this new covenant era is, is, is going forth, we might be confident and confirmed that Jesus is indeed Lord and Savior and risen from the dead and King sitting at the right hand of the Father. And so then here we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 that there's a sense in which what he's saying is is look, the the gift of tongues, he says clearly, is not for believers but for unbelievers. He's saying this is a sign for those, it's a sign of judgment against those who are denying, denying Christ. Those from Israel who have. Uh, rejected the, the, the Messiah and Savior. Now the gospel has gone into the uttermost parts of the world, and, and then the, the various languages confirming the fact that the gospel has gone into the uttermost parts of the world. It's a confirmation kind of gift. Now, at the same time, revival would be the same. So we, say, we see thousands of people being saved in this era confirming the gospel. And so there's a sense in which there's the, uh, ima- Imagine a wave. The wave comes and it's, it rises and then it peaks and then it, uh, it, it breaks. And we're seeing right here the break of the wave. Meaning there is a lot of stuff happening in Acts, in this first sort of era. There's a lot of stuff happening to confirm the gospel. For unbelievers, the wave breaks, the wave dissipates. For 2,000 years, the gospel has been confirmed and praise to the Lord. Through the preaching of the gospel, through the gospel crossing the globe, churches springing up, the gospel has been confirmed. Now does this mean that we don't see this gift or other maybe similar gifts at all, that's not what I'm saying. We're not saying that it's absolutely gone, meaning the wave crashes, dissipates, and there still may be ripples. There still may be uses for, for certain reasons to confirm the gospel. But if this gift is experienced, the key is there must be an interpretation, a valid, accurate, reliable interpretation. So I don't put anything past God. If someone were to speak in a language and maybe a few of our elders or some really trustworthy people in this church heard it and understood it, and I'm not going to put anything past God. Um, if if there's a French speaker among us who doesn't know the gospel, and one of you all of a sudden has the ability to speak French and you start preaching the gospel to this person in French, we're going to let that go. Please, praise God. But what we see here, and this is so key, in verse 37, if anybody thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that I'm writing these things to you as a command of the Lord. If anybody thinks that you've got it together and you are spiritual and, and, and here are the boundaries. This is what it looks like. Recognize that we must operate within the Word of God. This is a command from the Lord. Should we pursue the gift of tongues? Look at verse 39, it's interesting the way he words this. He says, so my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. Pursue prophecy, desire to prophesy but don't forbid speaking in tongues. I believe that language is quite striking. Should we pursue the gift of tongues? I don't think so. But if it's done in a biblical manner well then we wouldn't forbid the gift of tongues. Now let's move on to the second detour, and that is prophecy. The gift of prophecy. Again, we see with this gift a number of abuses. One very common abuse of the gift of prophecy is a sense of future telling. Saying this is going to happen. And it doesn't. You know, a prophet, when they say something's going to happen, when, when Hosea was warning, when Isaiah was warning, well, it happened. So that's an abuse. Or maybe it does happen, but there was no point in saying that it was going to for For, for example, a friend of mine, his father, he, he told me his father had a gift of prophecy and, uh, and prophesied that a man was going to, a friend of his was going to have a car accident and it was going to be bad and he was going to like, fly through the windshield. And that day it happened. Well, why did God give him that prophecy? For what, per, for what edification? For what building up of the church did he have this future telling that this was going to happen? Whatever that might be, premonition, I don't know, but that's not the gift of prophecy, alright? That's, that's what we're saying here. Those are some, some abuses, or maybe specific, infallible direct revelation akin with thus saith the Lord. Would it be another abuse? So for instance, to say, you must do this, and to disobey me is to disobey God. That's an abuse of prophecy. To Look, Scripture is given to us with a magnitude of prophecy. There's a kind of prophecy that, th- through which the prophets and the apostles were moved that gave us the word of God God. It is a magnitude of prophecy, and to disobey this prophecy is to disobey God. Let's talk about that. In the Old Testament, there was the role of, or the office of, prophet, capital P. The New Testament, there was the role of the office of apostle, capital A. Now, in this situa- situation, in, let's say, the Old Testament, the prophecies would not be determined as Uh, valid or invalid. It was the prophet that was determined. It was the man that was confirmed. And if the man is confirmed, then everything the man says is the word of God that must be obeyed. Unfortunately today, some people still believe that this kind of office exists. And they give themselves the title prophet. And everything that comes from this person must then be the word of God or you're disobeying God. One member of our church, Daniel, I asked if I could uh, share this this story. There he is. I thought you disappeared for a second. Um, Daniel called me shortly after he he began attending our church, called me up and was frustrated and discouraged, as most people are after they begin attending our church. (laughs) Amen? Um, And uh, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, I'm not coming back here. Um, So he calls me up and he says, uh, I'm discouraged, I'm frustrated. Um, A number of people had prophesied over his uh, life that he would sign with a recording label because he has a great voice, an amazing singer. And a number of people have heard his voice and they prophesied, you are going to sign. I see something. God's gonna use you and you're gonna sign with a recording label and you're gonna be famous. God's going to use your gift in a big way. It hasn't happened yet for Daniel. And he called me frustrated. Um, is, is God wrong? What's, what, what's going on? I mean, a number of people have confirmed it. Is, I, I, I want to try to understand, is God wrong? You see, this kind of abuse of the gift of prophecy is not only wrong, it's destructive. It's destructive for the individual that receives the prophecy. They, uh, they might feel really good for about a year, two, three, and then the husband never comes along or the child never comes along and they begin to get uh, discouraged. It's also destructive for the one giving the prophecy because after some time you have to just say, wait a second, I was told that I had this gift. So all that to say, capital P, prophet, capital A, apostle, Ephesians 2.20, it says that our faith is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, I've worked construction. Any other construction workers in here? Those of us that have worked construction, um, do we ever lay a foundation twice? No. No a foundation is laid one time. So he's saying our faith is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. To then have a sort of another wave of apostles and prophets, capital A, capital P, is then to lay another foundation, which would be another movement, which would be another church or another building. So our foundation, he says, has been laid by the apostles and the prophets. However, all that said, there seems still to be a Maybe a, we could call it a lesser gift of prophecy, a, a gift of prophecy that is not akin with, thus saith the Lord, that is not akin with Scripture and the authority of Scripture. Because what we see here, look at the chapter in verses 29 and 30, he says, Let two or three prophets speak, let the others weigh what is said. Meaning, there is this kind of prophecy happening in the church in Corinth, in which, uh, or which must be evaluated. This isn't to be received, thus saith the Lord, as if it came from a capital P, prophet. But rather, it's a kind of prophecy that ought to be evaluated. The validity thereof must be determined to be true from God or not. In verse 3, it says that the role of this kind of gift of prophecy is to build up the church is to encourage the church or an individual. It's to console the congregation or maybe an individual. In chapter or verse 24, we see that it is, it is to convict individuals of sins that are in their life. We see an example of something similar in Acts chapter 21, verse 4, where it says that through the Spirit, the Christians there urged Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. A sense in which God's Spirit was moving. Paul, we don't believe you should go to Jerusalem. It seems then that there is this gift of prophecy which we could define as a receiving and then subsequent sharing of a divinely originated word of conviction, edification, encouragement, or consolation built on the word of God let me say that one more time. It's a receiving and sharing of a divinely originated word of conviction, edification, encouragement, or consolation, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the word of God. For example, I'll give you an example. Uh, It's been spoken through a number of people that they believe our church needs to pray more God has been convicting them of the fact that we need to be praying more as a church. Uh, this individual, a number of individuals actually spoke, spoke to me, and I actually spoke to the elders, and I said, hey, uh, these folks have said that they really believe that we're not praying enough as, as a church. They're convicted. We need to be praying more as a body. Our elders discussed, and, and we determined, yes, yes, we need to receive, that. like we need to be praying more as a church. And we looked in the Bible and it's based on the foundation like, Yeah, you know, churches in the Bible pray a lot. And we are convicted of the fact that we don't value prayer. You see, conviction, edification, encouragement. And so now I'm preparing a message series on praying for the church and we're thinking through ways and strategies on how we can encourage you to pray more individually and in groups and in house communities as a body it's nothing nothing crazy it's not a thus saith the lord kind of prophecy it's not more specific than the bible is itself meaning uh this individual doesn't come along and say our church needs to build a prayer tower it's going to be hard to base a prayer tower on what we see in the scriptures. Our church needs to move from Baltimore to Detroit. Well, it's very difficult to base that on the Scriptures. I need, Joel, I feel like God is telling me I need to move to, to Dallas. Well, it's very hard to base something that's more specific than the Bible on the Scriptures. But there are words of encouragement and consolation and conviction that are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets that we have a sense in which the Spirit is moving in us to deliver powerfully to an individual or to a congregation and we then evaluate it and receive it as the Word of uh, God for us built on His Word. Now this also... Um, helps us then to understand what we see in the verses 34 and 35. As this is built on the foundation of the Scriptures, we should, this isn't a kind of prophecy in which we close our Bibles and say, okay, tell me what, uh, what God is saying. This is an open Bible sort of conversation. And as we then evaluate the, valid- the validity of the Word then, um, uh, which is commanded here to evaluate it, he gives us verses 34 and 35. What he's saying is this. What does it mean, women should be silent? Well, We already know that women are um, allowed to prophesy in the local church. We saw that in uh, a previous chapter. So what can he possibly mean here? Uh, he's, he's simply saying this. When those uh, are, who are determining the validity of this prophecy, which is an elder role, role, are determining it, then, as in all the churches, women ought to remain silent silent. Um, If there are questions about why the elders did not accept this prophecy or did accept this prophecy, well then speak with your husbands, your elder husband, assumingly, when you get home. I think that's all he's saying. We've already established from Scripture that that God has called men to lead their homes and to lead their churches, and we've already established in Corinthian that there was a uh, sort of an uprising of the women in the church that did, just simply did not trust the leadership and were speaking out against what the leadership was doing. Um, and I think that's all Paul is saying. It shouldn't be any more contentious than, than, the, uh, than the already contentious discussion of gender roles within the church and in the home. Now, if all we did was uh, look at chapter 14 and talk about tongues, and then talk about prophecy. And we spend all of our time just debating whether or not this what these are, whether or not we should use them, whether or not we should pursue them, etc., etc., etc. I think the apostle Paul would have his head in his hands, nodding his head back and forth bemoaning the fact that we have entirely missed the point. At the end of the day, chapter 14 really is not about tongues. And it's not about prophecy, and it's not about gender roles. Chapter 14 has a destination that's actually far beyond these debates that we so often find ourselves in. Let's get to the destination of of where Paul and God wants us to go. What's oozing through this chapter is God's love for the church and God's love for the lost. So if you're not a Christian, God wants you to know who Jesus is when you visit a church if you are a Christian, when you attend your church gathering, God wants you to be strengthened and built up and encouraged in your faith. So three principles that are sort of overarching principles and destination points in this passage. The first one is this, the church's worship when the church gathers should be clear, verses 2 through 12. We see there in verse 7 this instrument analogy. If a guitar is picked up and strummed back and forth and John isn't playing it at all, it's just strumming. Sure, the sound is bigger and the sound is louder, but Paul's saying the sound is not better. You see, we need to have distinct notes. We need to have a melody. The church's worship must not be crazy and chaotic, but it must be ordered so that it might be clear. In verse 23, he then brings this back in and he says, "Look, if if you're if you're just everybody's doing this at the same time and there's no order in the church, everybody's praying at the same time or everybody's preaching at the same time, then nobody, including the unbelievers, will be encouraged." So our worship is to be intelligible and precise, verse 12. Verse 12 he says, "Look, if you're eager for the spirit, Like if you really are somebody that wants to be spiritual. You're somebody that wants to be in a church that is spiritual. He says, contain yourselves. Contain yourselves. So that the reasoning here is so that the Word might be clear. So that the Word might be clear, so that the mind might be used, so that the heart might be Convicted of secrets so that the unbeliever might respond with conviction and falling on his face, worshiping God. What is the church to be clear about? The church is to be clear about the message of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's letter is all about. For those of you who don't know what the message of Jesus Christ is, this is, in particular, is what we, what we want to be clear about. So, if you haven't listened to anything else, listen to this. God is a holy God, a perfect God, who created this world to reflect His beauty and His glory, His holiness, His perfection. Humanity rebelled against this God, and God is a just God. And God cannot allow rebellion to continue And God is judging humanity and will judge humanity once and for all eternally in hell. Because of your sin, you are on your way to hell. Yet there is good news. God sent his son, Jesus Christ, who was God, into this world. Who took on flesh and became a human, fully God and fully man who lived the life that you should have lived of perfect obedience before the Father. He then went to the cross willingly on that Good Friday. Jesus then, when He died on the cross, died in your place. He took on the wrath of God for your sins. He took the penalty of God for your sins. And it crushed Him. And it killed Him. Jesus then didn't stay in the grave, but three days later, He rose from the dead. Defeating sin and defeating death and defeating the grave. And the good news is this, all who trust in Jesus Christ will have their sins forgiven. Now, they will be freed from the power of sin now. And they have the hope of the resurrection. They have the hope That they too will arise from the dead with Jesus Christ. And that they will forever be freed from the presence of sin. Freed from death. Freed from sickness. Freed from pain. Freed from sorrow. Tears wiped away. The appeal is to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And God will fill you with His Holy Spirit, and you are then adopted as His Son as his daughter. That's what we want to be clear about. I hope every Sunday as we gather that that message right there is clearly communicated. The clarity must be seen then in all aspects of our worship. Whether we experience the gifts that are mentioned here in chapter 14 or whether we experience other normal normal aspects of of how we worship as a church and testimonies that are given. A testimony that rambles and nobody knows what they're talking about, it's just unhelpful. Sermons that make no sense. They're just not very useful. Songs which are, I don't know, overly emotional and shallow. They don't really say anything. Prayers which are thoughtless or careless or boring. Again, not helpful. Verse 20 says that we ought to be infants in evil, but yet we should be mature in our thinking. Which means that in the church, we should use our minds so that the gospel might be clearly communicated through our worship. So testimonies then should be thought, thoughtful and concise and say something about Jesus. Uh, my sermons, I, I try, alright? That's the best I can give you. I try to be clear. <laughs> I try to be concise. And to say something that makes sense. Songs, we, we, we intentionally select songs that say something about who Jesus is. And about who we are and about the goodness of God and the Gospel. Our prayers, we... we, we we try to have prayers that are thought out. Some individuals, some of you guys that pray up here, you write your prayers out. It's not because you don't want to be spiritual, but it's because you want, to, you want to say something in your praying that is useful and encouraging and uplifting for the body. So what he's saying then is that the church's worship is to be clear so that we might say something meaningful about Jesus. Secondly, he's saying the church's worship is to be corporate. This doesn't mean a corporation like we're all wearing bow ties, for example, but corporate in the sense of united. We're to be united. We're to be combined as one, verses 13 through 15. He says that uh, if it's just your spirit that is praying, you're just praying individually as a spirit, and it's just like your own personal worship thing. He says in verse 16, how can anybody say amen with you? You're You're having a nice little worship time by yourself, and Paul's basically saying, Look, we want in on that. Let us, let, let, let us say amen to whatever it is that God is doing in your life. Verse 19, Paul says, I'd rather say five words that make sense in a church than a thousand words and that don't make any sense at all. Verse 26, he then, going back, he, he requires an interpretation. Why? Verse 31, he says, So that all might be encouraged. His point here is that we are a body, we're not just individuals. We don't come together and and do our own little individualistic thing, but we come together as a body. We don't come together and dim the lights during the music session and everybody just find your own little private worship space and do your thing and close your eyes and just pretend like it's just you and Jesus walking through the garden all alone. (laughs) We don't say, sing if you feel like it but if you don't feel like it, that's fine. We don't say, hey, uh, communion's up here. Just feel free whenever you feel like it, whenever you feel led. Take communion. I'm not going to tell you to do anything. You know, if you don't want to sit through the whole sermon, if you don't feel led to, all right, that's cool. No, we actually come together as a body. We are individuals that come together, and we do things together as a body. So worship should be corporate. This is why we worship with the lights on. Now, why is it that we don't have like, big spotlights up here and we turn all the lights off? It's not because we can't afford it. It's because this is actually part of what we believe worship should look like. We should have lights on. You can close your eyes if you want. I usually sing with my eyes open. Often I'll look around because I like to be reminded that I'm singing the truths of God with my brothers and sisters. Amen. So we all sing together. I've never heard John say, sing if you feel like it. If you don't feel like singing, don't worry about it. But we say, sing. Let's lift up one voice as one body. We read creeds and confessions together. We read scripture passages together. This might seem strange to some of you, but that's why we do it. It's because we want to be corporate. We want to be together as a body. We confess sins every week as a body. This is, now we will confess our sins together. And then an individual comes up and leads us through a corporate confession of our sins why is it that we encourage you week after week after week to mingle with one another afterward? It's not because we want you just to have friends. We do want you to have friends. But it's because we are a body. Yes, we come as individuals, but we're not individualistic. We come together as a body. and We want to help each other grow and be more like Jesus. And so our worship ought to be then united, corporate, combined as one. Lastly, Paul is saying that the church's worship should be attractive to unbelievers. Look at verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and everybody speaks in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? That's a word. But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He is called to an account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. God is saying that our worship ought to be attractive, not confusing. We shouldn't scare people off. But our worship should be attractive to unbelievers. This doesn't mean that we do this through having you know music that is like I don't know, singing the songs of the day are just amazing. We want to be quality. We want to do things well, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's not saying that we deliver messages that are sort of easy to swallow and nice and how to have a better Monday. (laughs) No, actually, the message of the gospel um, is hard to swallow. It always is hard to swallow. And then the ramifications of following Christ, being obedient to Christ, living lives that are, Convicted and converted to the life of Jesus. It's hard to swallow. If you're not a Christian, you need to know that, that over the last 40 minutes, you have either been attracted to the gospel or you have been repelled by the gospel. You are not sitting here. If you've been listening, you're not sitting here in the same place you were 40 minutes ago. The gospel attracts the, 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 the message of the forgiveness of sins attracts and draws. And the message of the gospel repels as well because we don't want to con- consider our hearts. What should be attractive, he says. Or let me just put that into a question. What is it that should be attractive? Well, it's here... In these verses, through the clarity of what's preached, through the clarity of the Word, through the union of believers, he says, if all prophesy or all speak words that are in line with the Scriptures, powerful words, he says, individuals will be convicted of their sins. The secrets of their heart will be revealed and they will fall on their face in worship of God. What a Savior He is. And they will say, he says, we know that God is among you. You see what they're attracted by? It's nothing sort of like peripheral or on the edge. They're not attracted by our cool logo. Whatever. They're they're attracted because there's a sense in which everything in them has been exposed. And only God can do that. The deeper secrets of their hearts that they have run from have been exposed and they have found not condemnation but forgiveness. And only God, only God can do that. They have walked in with hurts, deep emotional pains, and they have experienced healing. Only God can do that. You see... Individuals, non-believers say that God is among us not when we are being crazy and ecstatic. It's not when we are being somber and quiet. They don't say God is among you when we're being loud or when we're being weepy. But rather, an unbeliever says God is among you when he or she is convicted of their sin and they see Jesus as their great and glorious Savior. Savior. Look at verse 25. They declare that God is among you. Friends, isn't that what we want? Isn't that our hope? That God's presence would be experienced among us? That God would sweep through and break our hardened hearts? would expose to us our deepest secrets and our longings and our needs and that we might find our sweet Savior, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment of all that we are running for and looking for in life. That is what we want. And God is among us. And we experience His presence through the clarity of the message through the clarity of the Gospel. As God's truth is preached and spoken in a number of different ways. And as we physically or in our hearts fall on our faces and worship God. Friends, that is our desire. That's why this chapter was written. Maybe you have secrets in your heart. Maybe you're realizing that there are no secrets with God. I hope what you are discovering right now is that as God exposes the, 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 the dirt that He cleanses as well, that He forgives. Trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and listen, you are forgiven. Will you turn to him? Will you fall on your face and worship him as God? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. God, it is your presence that we want to experience. We thank you for this powerful word that you have given to us through chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. To remind us that the true spiritual nature of what happens when we gather is not in the outward expressions, but it's in the clarity of what is presented. And that is Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the forgiver of sins, the victor over death, who stands now risen as King, who is coming again at the right hand of you. And as He comes again, may we trust in Him so that we might stand with Him on that day. It is in Jesus Christ's name and through the power of the Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen.